Well, good morning. Glad you're here this morning. Today, we're going to continue in our series, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust God. And I just want to remind you, because we come back to this over and over again, but it's so important for us to talk about, and it's this truth. It's the fact that sometimes, you know, in church life, we talk a lot about trusting God, don't we, right? We talked about the whole beginning of the year, what does it mean to trust God, why we should trust God in the sense of what are the areas we need to trust God with. But the truth of the matter is this, for me in my life, and maybe for many of you in your life, it's this, is that while we know intuitively that we are supposed to trust God, there's something about answering the question of why that makes that more palatable for us. We know we're supposed to trust God, but there's something deep within all of us that wants to know, okay, I know I'm supposed to, but why can I trust God? What is it about God that makes him trustworthy? What is it about God that makes him dependable? Why can I trust him? So over the last several weeks, we've talked about different reasons why we can trust God. We started with the, maybe the greatest reason, and that's because he is the great what? I am. He's the great I am. He's the one that transcends time and place. He's the one that, that is the eternal God when there is no other God. He is sovereign. He reigns. He rules. He's creator. He's over all things. So we can worship him and trust him because he is the great I am. And then we talked about another reason we can trust him is because he knows. He is omniscient. He knows everything. Now, for many of you, when we went through that passage and we began to look at that, for some of you, that made you extremely nervous to know that God knows everything. He knows every hurt. He knows every burden. He knows every sin. He knows every failure. He knows every thought. He absolutely, positively knows everything about you. In fact, if you remember, the, the psalmist came to this conclusion. He knows me better than I know myself. And the fact that God is all-knowing can either bring us comfort as it should, as it did David, or it should present maybe a challenge for us. And then last week, we didn't talk about the fact that God is all-knowing. We talked about what? Anybody remember what we talked about last week? That he's what? He's ever what? Present. He's everywhere all the time. There's never a moment in our lives that he is not with us, that he's not mindful of us, that he is not present with us. And we talked about through one of my favorite passages, Psalms 23, as David looked back on his life, one thing that David would have declared was this, is that as I look back over my life through the valleys and the mountaintop experience, the one thing is true is this, is that God was always with me. And his presence sometimes brought humility. Sometimes it brought encouragement, but it always brought hope. And so why can we trust God? Because he is the great I am. Why can we trust him? Because he knows everything. Why can we trust him? Because he's always present. Let me give you a fourth reason today. Why can we trust God? Because he is all powerful. Do you believe that? Say amen. amen. Now, when I was a kid, one of my favorite TV shows, and it was one of Sonya's favorite TV shows, was the show, the, the star of the show, his name was David Banner. Anybody remember that show? Now, some of you are like, no, Doug, you're wrong, it's Bruce Banner. No, 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 before there was Bruce, it was David, all right? It was David Banner, and it was the show what? What was the show called? The Incredible Hulk. That's right. I remember watching that show, and I was, maybe as a child, addicted to the show. In fact, so much so that for Christmas, what I really wanted when I was like seven or eight years old was I wanted the Incredible Hulk underwear. That's what I wanted, maybe more than anything else. 
And so I love that show because when you would see David uh, Banner turn into Lou Ferrigno, the Incredible Hulk, I mean, there was something about him that thought, this guy has power and can do things that nobody else can do. I mean, it was almost as a kid, I feel like if that's what power looks like, I want to be on Team Lou Ferrigno. I want to be on Team Incredible Hulk, right? Because he can do absolutely, positively anything. He would turn green. He would blow up. He'd flip cars over. He'd break down doors. He'd throw people hundreds of yards away. I mean, he was powerful. But the more you watch the show, the more you figure out this. He wasn't all powerful. He had weaknesses, right? There's a moment he went back to David Banner, and David Banner was cowardly, weak, and fragile. So the Incredible Hulk wasn't all powerful. Now, I say that to say this. We think of power in terms of that way, but the truth of the matter is the God that we just sang to, the God we just elevated the name of Jesus, the God that we shout praises to, he is all powerful. There is no weakness in him. There is no fragileness in him. He is all powerful. He holds all things together, all things in his hand, and he has authority over all things. Amen? Now, you know that from Scripture, right? What about the story of the Red Sea? Do you remember when the Israelites came to the Red Sea and they began to, to question Moses? Hey, Moses, why'd you bring us here? We could have died in Egypt. There's a mountain here, a mountain there. Pharaoh's army's behind us, and we got this massive sea in front of us. What are we going to do? Now, we know the story, but they didn't know the story. All they know is obstacle, 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 really big obstacle. But we see the power of God that when power, when he, Moses raised the staff, what happened to the waters? They began to separate. What about when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, a furnace that was heated seven times hotter, such that when the people that threw him in died, right? And they go into the fire, and there's not three in the fire, there's what? There's four in the fire, and they come out, and they're, even the ropes on their arms are unsinged. I mean, that's not the power of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's a power of an all-powerful and almighty God. What about Jericho? One of my favorite stories. Do you really think millions of Israelites marching around a city, just marching, once, seven times on the seventh day and letting out a shout and a trumpet sound was enough power to bring the walls of Jericho down. Do you really think that? No, that was the power of God working and moving through the people of Israel. Here's my point. As we come today and we wonder, why can we trust God? Listen, here's why. Because he's all powerful. There is nothing too big for our God. Listen, if he can shoulder your salvation, he can shoulder whatever burden you have this morning. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're wrestling with, he is all powerful and always in control. But here's the problem for all of us. We know that maybe, but when struggles come or decisions have to be made, oftentimes we don't lean into that, do we? We don't trust that he really is the powerful God that we know that he is. But the truth of the matter is, one of the reasons we can trust him is because he is all-powerful. So today, here's what I want to do. I want you, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 5. And I want us to look at a guy in John chapter 5 that Jesus comes across, and he stands in front. I mean, this guy experiences the power of an almighty God, Jesus. And I want you to see how he responds to the power of Jesus and see if we can find ourselves in this story. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 5, I know you just sat down, but you need some exercise. So everybody stand up with me in honor of reading God's word. If you're awake this morning, say, I'm awake. 
Here we go. John chapter 5, verse 2 says this. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which have five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps in front of me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we know that you are all powerful today. But God, I pray that we would trust you because of that today. I pray that we can find ourselves in this story and see how this guy responded to Jesus. And may that not be the way we respond to you. Lord, bless this time. Bless your word. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as you look at the story, what I want to do is I just want to walk the journey. I want to walk through these seven verses, and I want us to see the story in real time. In fact, the first couple of verses give us context. Let's go back to verse 2 and 3. It says this. It says in verse 2, Now, there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate was a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida. It actually translates a place of mercy. Is what Bethsaida translates, a place of mercy, which had five roofed colonnades or porches. In these, the lame, uh, the, 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 they are a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, what we learn from this contextually is this, is that there's this pool called Bethsaida. And this pool is actually right outside what was called the Sheep Gate. Really, the Jews did not call it the Sheep Gate, but it was an entry point into the temple where the sheep came through. It was on the southeastern side of the temple. Now, the reason it was called the Sheep Gate is because when they would bring sacrifices to get them viewed and tested by the high priest to see if they were worthy to be sacrificed, they brought them through the Sheep Gate, meaning there were a lot of sheep that came through that were turned away. There were a lot of sheep that came through that were not without blemish, not without flaw, but they were flawed, and they were sent right back out. Now, if you know anything about livestock, if this is the main entry point where the sheep would come through, you know there had to be a gathering place of all these people bringing all their sacrifices around this area. So what else uh, can you imagine that was a part of this gathering place where all these sheep were as they entered into the sheep gate? Can you imagine filth, stench, right? I mean, this was not like the, the, uh, the, the fluent side of the temple. Nobody wanted to hang out on the southeastern side because that's where all the sheep were at. And right outside the sheep gate, on the southeastern side of the temple, was the pool of Bethsaida. I should have brought a picture today, but it was actually a large area. It had five porches. It had two porches on the side, two porches on the end, and one porch that went right down the middle. Now, originally, the pool of Bethsaida was used to collect rainwater, and it was used as a reservoir for the temple. They would use that water for different things they did in the temple. But by the time Jesus comes along, it's no longer used as a reservoir. There's a group of people, invalids, the paralyzed, the lame, and they would lay beside this pool. They would all lay, not, not just like at a distance, like when you go to the pool and you kick back in your chair and you're like 100 feet from the pool, that's not what they would do. Literally, if this, this, uh, this rugs were the pool, they would lay right beside it, all around it. So you've got all these places to lay, all these porches, and they would lay under these porches all the way around these two pools. Actually, it was one pool. They would lay around it in hopes that something great would happen. Now, here's what they believed. They would lay around this pool because they believed this. They believed that periodically, 
an angel would come by. And that angel would stir the waters of the pool. And when the waters were stirred, that means it was time for healing to happen. And if you were the first one in the pool, you would be the one healed. But nobody knows who's the first one in the pool. So they would all jump in the pool or row in the pool or have someone throw them in the pool when the waters were appeared to be stirred and they would get in and then they didn't have to get back out and they would lay there and wait to see if anyone was healed. And if they were healed, they must have been the first one in the pool. Now think with me just for a moment. If you're a paralytic, if you're lame, if you're crippled and you're laying there and you are healed, this is like a dream come true, isn't it? Come on, are you with me this morning? Is this a dream come true? It is. Because think about it. Because of who they were, crippled, paralyzed, and lame, in the Jewish culture, they were viewed as ceremonially unclean, which meant they couldn't go into the temple. They couldn't offer a sacrifice in the temple. So I find it interesting here that right outside the temple, the place where they would love to be, dream to be, and long to be is this pool of Bethsaida where they spend years and years. Many scholars will tell you they lived there looking at the temple, almost like looking like Moses at the promised land that he never got to go into. I want to be in the temple. I want to sacrifice. I want to worship my God. But the Jewish culture says, I can't because I'm lame. So maybe, maybe if I get healed, maybe if my disease is taken from me, my life's going to change. Then I can go into the temple, and then I can worship Almighty God. Then I can make sacrifices. See, they stayed at the pool because they wanted to find hope. Hope that their life would change. Now, I know what some of you are thinking because you're really smart going, okay, is this true or is this just superstition? Well, let me tell you this. There is no biblical evidence that there was ever a stirring of the waters. There's no biblical evidence. There was an angel that passed by. There's no biblical evidence that people were ever healed out of this pool. In fact, if you study Roman and Jewish historians, they would tell you there was no historical evidence either. Basically, the conclusion most theologians come to is this. It was just a superstition. Just a superstition. Just a superstition. They just had this random belief that if water stir, there must be an angel. We get in, we get out, maybe we'll be healed. And there's no really accountability because if you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and they all get in the pool and they all get out, you're never going to walk around because you can't. You're never going to mingle and, and you know, gotta check out because you can't. You're just going to stay there and hope. Stay there and hope because one day you want to get to the temple. Now, for the Jewish leaders of the day, the pool of Bethsaida would have been viewed as a pagan shrine. That's how they would have viewed it. They would have viewed it as all these people who were unclean coming to a place, finding their hope in something other than Almighty God. And so it was a shrine. It was a pagan shrine to them. So they viewed it as people who were the throwaways of the world. When they looked at the Pool of Bethsaida, the Jewish people would go, these are the nobodies. These are the have-nots. These are the I don't want to be around people. These are the throwaways. These are the worthless people of our culture. That's who's at the Pool of Bethsaida. But then Jesus comes along. See, the Jewish culture, would have, the Jewish leaders would have looked at Jesus going, you have no business at the pool of Bethsaida. You claim to be of God. You claim to be the voice of God. You even claim to be God. Nobody should be at the pool of Bethsaida. That is the unclean. That is the people who are the throwaways. Nobody should be there. In fact, the Jewish leaders would have highly ridiculed Jesus for even being there. But yet, isn't that the places that Jesus always found himself? 
like in the home of a tax collector, right? Are you with me on that? And so he shows up at the pool of Bethsaida. Now, let me tell you why that's important to us. You ready? Because Jesus showing up at the pool of Bethsaida, a place that represented the throwaways, the nobodies, the have-nots, reminds us that to Jesus, there aren't any throwaways. To Jesus, there aren't any have-nots. To Jesus, there aren't any people who are deemed worthless, right? So Jesus shows up. And then something awesome happens. Look at me in verse 5 and 6. I love this. 5 and 6 says this. And one man was there who had been there an invalid for 38 years. How many of you are under 38 years? Anybody under 38? There's a bunch of old people in the room. All right, great. So, so, can you imagine spending all of your life by the pool of Bethsaida with hope? Every day. Every moment of every day hoping that your superstition is right. And then something awesome happens. Look what it says. He was there for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be what? Do you want to be healed? Now, when you first read the story, there's a part of you, the cynical part of you, that goes, okay, I'm not sure that was like the most amazing question Jesus ever really asked, right? Because what would be the answer you would assume the paralyzed guy or the, 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 the guy would have given him? Duh, yeah, I want to be healed. But you've got to understand the culture. What Jesus is saying is not necessarily, hey, I know you're crippled, do you want to be healed? What he's saying is, are you sure you want this? I know you're here for a reason. You're obviously at the pool of Bethsaida because you want to get in, you want to get healed. Maybe you want to go to temple, you want to worship God, or you want to live your life. But I'm just asking you, are you sure you really, really, really want this? Because if this happens for you, everything changes. If you're healed, everything changes for you. Now you're going to have to take up responsibilities that you've never taken up before. Now you're going to build relationships you've never had to build before. Now you may actually have to do the unthinkable and get a job because you're able. See, are you sure you want this? Because if you want it, it changes everything. And if so, man, you're going to pick up responsibilities. If so, you're going to pick up relationships. He's saying, are you beyond a shadow of a doubt? Sure, because listen, for 38 years, all you've known is this. All you've known is being crippled and lame. Are you really sure that you want this? Now, I know still the cynical part of you goes, well, duh. But Jesus does this a lot. See, Jesus is establishing it's one thing to want to be healed. It's another thing to desperately want to be healed. See, many of you came in the room today saying, Lord, I want you to do something in my life today. But that's different from someone saying, Lord, I'm desperate for you to do something. I'm not leaving today. I'm like Jacob. I'm not leaving this place, Lord, until you touch me, until you move me, until you do something within me. God, I'm not leaving until you address what's going on in my life. There's a difference in just talking about God doing something and desperately wanting God to do something. Amen? Amen? And he said, are you sure? See, Jesus does this all throughout his ministry. Do you remember when people would come up to Jesus and they would say, hey, we want to follow you. And Jesus says, great. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Everything, if you want to follow me, great. But everything's going to change for you. Are you in? And we hear nothing from that guy, right? 
And another guy comes and said, listen, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Wherever you go, man, I'm on team Jesus. But first, let me go bury my dead father. He's almost dead. Let me go bury him, collect the inheritance, and then I'll come follow you. Jesus, I want to be your follower. Jesus said, okay, great. Let the dead bury the dead. Don't go back and collect your inheritance. If you're going to follow me, it's all about right now, not about tomorrow, not about next year, not about next week. It's right about right now. Guess what we heard from that guy? Nothing. And then the guy comes up to me finally and says, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. But first, let me go tell my family goodbye. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit to be my disciple. In other words, if you're going to follow me, it's about 100% focus. See, all through the New Testament, you see Jesus, these people come and say, I want to follow you. I want this. I want that. He's like, great. And then he challenges them. Are you sure? Because if you're sure... This is going to change everything. That's why I said, Peter, throw down your nets. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers, not of fish, but fishers of men. It made the decision that Peter made way more amazing, that he left everything and followed Jesus. And I say that because of this. Many of you in the room today say that you want to be a follower of Christ, that you want to live for him, you want to be passionately bold for him. And I would just simply say, I believe that the physical Lord Jesus was here this morning. He would say this to all of us. Are you sure? Are you sure you mean what you're saying? Because if you are, that means there's some things in your life you're going to have to lay down. Are you sure you want to follow me? Because if you are, there's some sin you're going to have to break from in your life. Are you sure you want to follow me? Because if so, you're going to have to rethink your pocketbook if you're going to follow me. Are you sure you want to follow me? Because if you're going to follow me, it requires something that's going to change in you and everything's going to change. Are you sure? That's the point of Jesus' question. Not just, hey, do you want to be healed? No, he's like, are you sure you want this? Because with this healing, everything changes. And then I love the guy's response. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered, now wait, wait, don't look, don't look. How would you answer that if you're the sick guy? Come on, come on, come on. How would you answer that? I'm sure, right? I have spent 38 years here. Yes, I'm sure. Yes, I don't mind responsibilities. Yes, I'll build relationships. Yes, I'll get a job if I have to. Yes, I'm sure. I, I just want to be, that's how I would respond. Isn't that how you would respond? But let's look how he responded. Verse 7. So this, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now that's peculiar, isn't it? He totally ignores what Jesus just said, right? He totally ignores it. It's almost as if he says this, Jesus asked this profound question. It's almost as if the guy has said, hey, listen, Jesus, I heard you talking, but do you mind just scooting over a little bit because I need to see the pool, Right? Hey, would you, could you just move to the side a little bit, Jesus? Because I need to see the pool. See, for this guy, he thought the power was in the pool. He thought the answers to what he needed in life was in the pool. And yet, God himself was standing in front of him. Now, think about the foolishness of that. This guy was like, hey, Jesus, slide to the left because I need to see the pool. Because if it stars, bro, I got to get in there and I have nobody to help me. So I need to be watching the pool. That's where the power is, Jesus. And yet God in the flesh is smack dab right in front of him. Now think about that one. To me, that's sad. Isn't it sad to you? God is standing in front of him, but he would rather see the pool. 
Now, if you think about it, this guy's superstition caused him to miss in this moment the power of God in his life. And as I thought about that, I thought, okay, is it possible that for many of us, we let silly superstitions like this guy cause us to miss the power of God in our life? Now, I want to talk about a few silly ones, okay? Like, for example, one of the superstitions, when you Google superstitions, I'm going to mention a few that come up. One of them is Friday the 13th, right? Friday the 13th. Now, what is associated with Friday the 13th? That it's what? It's unlucky, right? It's unlucky. Now, some of you that are of a generation, all you can think about is Jason, right? Friday the 13th, he was drowned on that day, and his mom wanted vengeance. No, no, no. If you actually study Friday the 13th concept, it goes way back further than Jason in the 1980s, all right? It goes back to a group of people, a religious sect that believed the Knights Templar, who were in charge of guarding holy things, were actually captured, imprisoned, and executed on a Friday the 13th. Some people will even believe, uh, we have no merit for this, that believe that even Judas hung himself on Friday the 13th. But there are tons of people that believe in the superstition of Friday the 13th as if it's, un, if it's unlucky. And you have to be careful what you do on that. But that's not the only one. you got people that read horoscopes every day, right? People read horoscopes, these silly superstitions that if you're an Aries, then this is what's going to happen to you this next year. And we believe it as if it has sole authority on our lives. What about, what about fortune cookies, right? We read those and like we want to switch with our neighbor because theirs is better than ours and, and we think it has like power. Or probably the biggest one is this, is what I call Christian karma. You know what karma is, right? Anybody ever watch Karate Kid? Remember Karate Kid? Danielson, right? Went to the bathroom, put the water hose on top of the bathroom and Johnny got soaking wet and as he ran out, he said the karma phrase, what goes around what? Comes around, Right? And there's some part of us that believes that what goes around comes around. Listen, those are all silly superstitions. But some of us believe in those things as if they have more power than Almighty God. But not only that, you know, this guy had a superstition. Maybe you have one. But not only that, this guy believed his wisdom was right versus believing in the power of God that was right in front of him. And maybe some of us in the room today believe that our wisdom is right versus the power of God that is in us, around us, right now. Abraham did this. God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. The problem was Sarah couldn't have kids, and they didn't have any. So how am I going to be a father of a great nation? I don't have any kids. So they began to have this conversation. What are we going to do? And God continues to promise and remind Abraham of the promise. I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. You're going to see my power unveiled in an amazing way. Abraham, just trust me. Did Abraham trust God? He and Sarah didn't really trust God. They kind of got together, and she's like, listen, Abraham, I can't have kids. God made a promise. Maybe you should go lie with, Ish, uh, or with uh, Hagar, the maidservant, right? And you know, I would love to tell you when I read the story, Abraham put up a big fight, but he didn't. He didn't because he, too, did not trust the power of what God was saying, and he went and laid with Hagar, and they had the son Ishmael, who was still not the promised son. And later, and only later, did God's power show through, and Sarah had who? Isaac, Right? See, Abraham thought his wisdom was more powerful than what God had spoken to his life. And I say that to say this. I think there's sometimes in our life, there's just sometimes in our life where we oftentimes just tell God, okay, God, could you just slide to the side a little bit? Because I need to see the pool, right? God, could you just move over? Because I think my superstition is a little more powerful than you. God, could you just slide to the side because I think my wisdom is more right than your wisdom? And my prayer for us today, honestly, is this, is that we would start focusing on the power of God. 
that we would start realizing that we serve and worship a God who is all-powerful. There is nothing that our God cannot do. Do you remember the story of the guy who was paralyzed and his four friends could not wait to get him in front of Jesus, but the place was packed, right? Do you remember the story? And so what did they do? They climbed up on the roof and they dug a hole and they dropped this guy through the roof all the way down because they knew if we just get him in front of the most powerful person, if we just get him in front of God, who is Jesus, if we just get him there, he will do only what God can do. What would happen if we start living our lives like that? If we start living our lives realizing that the power is in who we know, and that's the power we need to lean into and press into all the time. Then let's look how the story ends here. Look at verse 8 and 9. So this guy's response is obviously, obviously a very bizarre response. Look what happens in verse 8 and 9. Then Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now, what kind of moment would that have been if you're this guy? I mean, did Jesus have every right to go, nah, you didn't pass the test. I'm going to go to the next guy, right? Didn't he have every right? I mean, the only thing we know is that out of all these people to pull Bethsaida, Jesus talks to one. That's all we know. So he had every right to go, okay, you missed the litmus test here. I was offering you something, and all you wanted me to do was slide to the side so you could see the pool. I'm going to the next guy, because maybe somebody else will be more grateful. Maybe somebody else will listen to me. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. It's in this moment that Jesus demonstrated the unbelievable power that he has. He just said the words, and it happened. Now, I call that authority. How about you? Right? He said it, and it happened. He didn't coerce the crippleness to come out of him. He didn't persuade the crippleness to come out of him. He had authority over the crippleness in his body, and he called it out. He had authority over him. Now, think about that. Jesus had authority. And this is not the only place we see this. Do you remember when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus and Mary and Martha are weeping and sad and saying, Jesus, if you only come earlier. And Jesus, with that profound voice, said, Lazarus, what? Come forth. And I'm sure there was a pin drop of silence until they saw a man in grave clothes begin to come out of the grave. He spoke it. And it happened. What about when he stood up and the disciples were in chaos and he stood up to the storm and he said, peace be what? Still. And the storm stopped. What about the moment when he's walking down the road on the way to a house to heal a girl and he didn't even say anything, but a woman with the issue of blood just touches the hem of his garment. And he says, I felt power leave me. I'm just telling you, I bring those stories up to remind you that we serve a God that is absolutely, positively all-powerful. Amen? Do you believe that this morning? And there's nothing that he can't do. And so as we think about God being all-powerful, there's three things I want you to walk away with this morning that you may need to know. First of all, it's this, is that when we think about God being all-powerful, first of all, he's powerful enough to save our souls. He's powerful enough to save our souls. See, this guy had an aching in his body. Maybe some of you here today have an aching in your soul. Maybe you have a void that's there. Billy Graham always said we have a, a God-shaped hole in our heart. Maybe that's what you have today. 
And I'm asking you, if that's you today, if you have an aching in your soul and you're missing a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm asking you to do something that's going to be totally foreign to you. I'm asking you to trust him. Trust in the power of what he did when he died on the cross and three days later, he rose from the dead. Would you trust him? Because he has the power to save souls. And let me give you the same thing he has the power to do. He has the power to change our lives. See, I'm crazy because I still think God does miracles. Anybody else think God still does miracles? I mean, I still think he does. And I think he still does miracles in a powerful way. I used to say, well, Doug, well, I've not seen a Jericho experience. You know, I've not seen, you know I, I still think he speaks powerfully just as he did in the Old Testament. I think we see it all the time. Sometimes, though, when it comes to physical pain, sometimes our needs, he heals those needs, right? We've seen that. But sometimes he just teaches us through those needs. Do you remember the Apostle Paul had the thorn in his flesh? Three times he asked for it to be removed, but yet he learned this powerful truth that my grace is sufficient for you. I'm leaving it there, Paul, because I want you to be reminded that my grace is enough for you. So sometimes when it comes to physical needs, he heals us. Sometimes he just teaches us through it. Sometimes when it comes to pain, he removes the pain. Other times he speaks to us through the pain. Sometimes when it comes to our circumstances, he changes them. Other times he changes our heart's view of our circumstances. See, I believe God is still a miracle worker. I believe he's a miracle worker because he's an all-powerful God. And that means that sometimes he changes our outer situations and circumstances. Sometimes the greatest miracle he does is when he changes what's raging deep within our own hearts. Let me give you a third thing I believe God's power has to do. God has the power to heal our hurts. See, some of you here today, maybe you came in and you're hurting, right? Life happens. Man, wouldn't we all love it to be roses and rainbows all day long, all the time? But that's not life, is it? Some of us would say, I've rarely had moments in my life that was like that, right? And maybe you come in with hurts today. Maybe you have a hurt of a divorce you've gone through. I'm telling you, he has the power to heal that hurt. You can let the hurt go and trust him with it because of the power to heal it. Maybe you're wrestling with depression, or maybe you're wrestling with anxiety, or maybe you've got some other things you're wrestling with that's internally. Listen, he has the power to heal you of those things. He has the power to nurture you through those things. He has the power to speak to those things. Maybe you've gone through betrayal, betrayal of a best friend, maybe betrayal of a spouse, and you're hurting. Listen, he has the power to heal those hurts. So here's my question for all of us. Which one of these three do you need today? Do you need him to save your soul? Do you need him to change your life? Do you need him to heal your hurts? And no matter which one of the three it is, here's my question for you. I believe Jesus would ask you this way. Are you sure you want me to do that for you? Are you sure you want me to save your soul? Because if I do, it's going to change your life. It's going to change your eternity. And now your life is no longer about you, but it's all about me. Are you sure? Well, I want, you to, I want you to change my life, Lord. Okay, are you sure about that? Because if I change your life, that means you got some sin you're going to have to put away. you got some attitudes you're going to have to let go. There's a thing you're going to have to do where you're, you're following me and you're abandoning everything but me. I mean, you're focused on living for me. Are you sure you want me to change your life? Are you sure you want me to heal your hurt? Because for some of you, that means I'm going to have to bring some things up that you're going to have to deal with first. We're going to have to walk through this thing together before you can truly find healing and forgiveness. See, which one of the three you need? And then here's what I believe Jesus is asking us today. Are you sure you want that? Not just kind of yes, but are you desperately wanting that today? And so if you're here today and you say, you know what, Lord? I need you to save my soul. 
Lord, I need you to change my life. Lord, I need you to heal some hurts in my life. The only way to experience that is if we choose, listen, everybody look at me, if we choose to trust him. When we trust him, we experience the power of God in a powerful way in our lives. So here's what I'm going to ask you. to Everybody, just right where you sit, just I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just bow your heads. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Right where you sit. And for those of you this morning that would just simply say this, Doug, I feel like I need God to save my soul. I know that I don't have a relationship with Christ. If that's you this morning, He has the power to do it. He has the power to move you from death to life. He has the power to take you out of darkness and give you light. He has the power to rescue from an eternity apart from him and give you the hope of heaven. But you have to trust him. You have to receive the gift that he's offering you. Well, Doug, how do I do that? Well, just simply, if if that's you, just simply pray something like this, Lord Jesus. I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I've rebelled against you. And I know I deserve to be separated from you for all eternity. But I believe that you died on that cross. And I believe by the power of God you were raised three days later. And I surrender my life to you today. I want you to be Lord, boss, and master. And if you'll pray that, if you'll call out his name and you'll pray that, you'll be on Team Jesus forever. Your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you just pray that in a moment, you have a a welcome card in your worship folder or in the seat in front of you, would you just put your name down and say, today I gave my life to Christ. And a little bit later when we take the offering, just drop it in there. I want to touch base with you. I want to encourage you. I want to celebrate with you. Because if you prayed that, the Bible says heaven's throwing a party for you. Right now, the angels are rejoicing because of your decision. So if that's you today, don't leave here and not make that. But if you're here today and you're a believer, and say, Lord, what I desperately need is him to change my life. What I desperately need is for him to heal my hurts. I'm telling you, the only way we're going to experience is by trusting him. So today, if you're willing to trust him with those things, if you're willing to trust him and ask his power to work in and through you, I'm going to ask you to take a serious commitment today. Say, Lord, I'm committing today because you're all-powerful, because you're all-knowing, because you're ever-present, because you are the great I am, I'm trusting you today. And as an expression of your trust, as an expression of your commitment, as a believer, I'm going to ask you to join me in taking the Lord's Supper today. If you're willing to make that commitment, as an expression of that commitment, I'm going to ask you in a moment, to come to the Lord's table, to take that bread, to dip it into the juice, to remember the body that was beaten and the blood that was shed. But that's not where the story stopped. To celebrate the power of the resurrection, a power that lives within all of us as believers. So if you're a follower of Christ today and you've made that commitment and you're ready to say, Lord, I trust you with everything, I invite you in a moment when I'm done praying, join us as we take the Lord's Supper. Would you all stand with me as I pray? Everybody stand. Father God, we love you. I thank you for today. I thank you as we look at Jesus in John 5. Man, what a story. 
What a story of a guy who spent his life crippled, lame, a throwaway by society. And one encounter with Jesus changed everything. God, I pray for the person who prayed that prayer a while ago of salvation. They ask you to save their soul today. Lord, I pray that they would write that down. They would celebrate that you have changed them. From this moment on, their eternity is destined to be with you forever. God, thank you for them. But God, right now, I also pray for the believers in the room. Sometimes we like to hold our hurts, our needs, our burdens to ourselves because we think that our wisdom is more powerful than your activity and your wisdom. But God, today I pray for some believers that we would say, Lord, today we're committing. Because you are all powerful, we trust you. And God, as an expression of that trust, may we come and take the supper, remembering the body that was beaten, the blood that was shed, and the three days later that Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus, rose from the grave. And may we celebrate that with everything in us today. Lord, I ask you to move in and through us only as you can. And then may we be faithful to respond. For in your precious in your holy son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now listen, if you ask Christ to come into your life, please fill the card out. Put in the offering later. I want to make contact with you. But if you're a believer and you just want God to show up in a powerful way in your life and you're committing to trust, and Lord, I will choose to trust you over my way. I'll choose to trust your wisdom over my wisdom. As an expression of that commitment, I invite you to come to the table and to take the supper celebrating the death, the burial, but most importantly, the resurrection of Christ. So as the Lord leads you, would you be faithful to respond?